First, let me just say, my name isn't Dan Simkin, so if you read the uh, notice sheet, you were expecting Dan to be speaking on Joel, the prophet Joel, rend your heart. Well, uh, Joel, uh, Dan's, Joel's not here, but Dan's here, uh, but hasn't been very well. Uh, is your throat any better? Or Okay, yeah. Only getting there. So um, we need to keep praying for Dan. Glad you're back. Uh, Dan has been a little bit unwell following a, a tropical visit, uh, but more about that on another occasion, I'm sure. So it's me today, and we go, what, what, what we're doing over these few weeks are, are looking into um, the Bible as we do each Sunday, but we're thinking about some of the prophets in the Old Testament, what are often called the minor prophets. You find them in a little section towards the end of the Old Testament. And we're thinking today, um, we're going to have two sessions on the book of Habakkuk, which you will find on page 940 of the Bibles nearby, if you're going to be using that. If you've got your own Bible, well, I, get, I think probably the easiest thing is to start at Matthew and work backwards, and then you'll soon find Habakkuk. Although, watch out. The thing about these little minor prophets is they seem to keep moving around the Bible. You know, one minute they're there, and the next minute they're there. And that's because they only cover a couple of pages each, you see. So it's easy to miss them if you've got very thin Bible paper and not very good fingers um, like me. Anyway, I hope you found it by now. Uh, page 940. So, uh, yeah, so let's read verse uh, 1 of chapter of Habakkuk chapter 1. And it simply says, the oracle uh, or the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. And that's pretty much all we know about this man Habakkuk. Uh, he's a prophet. He uh, comes with a, a particular message. That word oracle has the idea of, and it's used of lots of the Old Testament prophets, when they, it's like a, a kind of a burden. It's like, he, he says, I've got this, this sense from God that I, I've got to kind of get this kind of, I've got to pass this on to other people. You know, it's like a, a burden he's carrying. And, and you, you, this kind of imagery often surrounds the way the Old Testament prophets understand what God wants to say and how he wants to speak through them. And uh, he wants to share it. Now, again, uh, if you've been around or if you haven't, look online or listen online, rather. You won't see much, but you can hear it all online. Um, Like Jonah, uh, uh, who is our first one, and Hosea, did you notice that with both of those Old Testament prophets, this word of God that they had, this burden that they shared, was kind of all wrapped up in their own experience, wasn't it? We saw that very powerfully in Hosea. We saw it also with Jonah. And in Habakkuk, it's a slightly similar thing that's going on. Because as we shall see with Habakkuk, he, he's very much letting us into his kind of journey with God as he was kind of processing uh, this particular word that he's been given. So we, as I say, we don't know very much about Habakkuk. Um, and all we've got is this book in the Bible. But um, some of his words, and you might spot them later, become really, really crucial um, in understanding how the early Christians understood just what it was that Jesus had done, what we celebrated just now in communion. See if you spot that later, uh, later on. So although he's a very minor prophet, some of the things he said really are powerful and spoke very powerfully Uh, and made sense in a new kind of way in the light of what Jesus came to do. And you often find that with Old Testament prophets. 
his, uh, his message made perfect sense at the time, or in as far as, obviously it's mysterious a bit, but, but there's another angle comes into it, and you often find that with that Bible prophecy. Well, from the context, we can tell that uh, he's around in the 600 BCs, the early 600s BC, rather, the early 600s. Uh, last time, we were thinking of, of, about Hosea, and before then, it was Jonah, and uh, Habakkuk is about 120 years after Hosea. So by Habakkuk's time, the northern state of Israel, you remember that the Israel that was, the Jewish nation was divided into two states, the northern one, Israel, by the time Habakkuk comes along, all that Hosea and other prophets had prophesied about Israel had come to pass, and the state of Israel virtually uh, no longer existed. They'd been uh, smashed to pieces by the Assyrians been destroyed. And Judah, the southern state who Habakkuk is speaking to, was actually shaping up for a similar fate, which came in 587 BC. So Habakkuk is writing about 20 or 30 years before the fall of Jerusalem at that point. Now, it's an unusual book in many ways. His message is very plain, actually, in one sense. His message is that God's judgment is coming on the state of Judah because of their rebellion, because they've turned away from God and his ways. But Habakkuk is, more is going on in his book because he's struggling with something out of that. In fact, he's different to any of the other prophets in some ways, perhaps with the exception of Jeremiah. And I'll probably think of other exceptions, even as I'm talking now. But, but he, he's very different in the sense that other prophets kind of bring God's word to people and ask them questions. Say, look, this is what God says. Why are you behaving like this? That's what the kind of they, they say. Um, Habakkuk actually brings God's word, but he starts asking God questions. He starts asking God to account. Uh, he, sure, he does call the people to account, but he's talking to God, as we shall see most of the time in this prophecy. And that's unusual. He wants God to give him some answers. And he's processing his understanding of God and his understanding of God's truth and the word that he's been giving. Uh, and he's processing it in this world that he lives in. And you get all this in the book of Habakkuk. But it's not just his personal testimony. It's not just his own story. It's not just him writing a book that says, Here, everyone, here's the story of my issues with God and how I walk through them. You know, you come with me and so on and so forth. No, it's not just that. It's actually this, because it's an oracle, because it's come with this burden, this is a word from God. God wants everybody to hear Habakkuk's story. God wants us to engage in the same process that Habakkuk went through. So we need to remember that. God wants this story told. We're invited to get right inside Habakkuk's interactions, his dialogues, even his arguments with God. Because Habakkuk is is mad. He's, you know, and he's confused. And he's telling God how he feels about what he's being told. And uh, as we get into his space, as we get into his world... Maybe we'll find some of our own dilemmas there, mightn't we? Well, let's, uh, let's read it on then. Let's see what he has to say. Let's look at uh, verses 2 to 4 in chapter 1. I call this questions for God. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? 
Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now, Habakkuk's questions, he's pretty strong, isn't he, in his questions here. They come out of his own experience of living as a believer. He's been praying. He's been praying a lot, he says. He's been calling for help. He says, I've been crying out to you, God. And I've been crying out about all the evil and the violence that exists in in my world, he's saying. And I want to know, God, what's going on? He's been praying and he's calling out to God. Verses 3 and 4, look at it. They give you a picture, don't they, of of what's going on. And the other Old Testament prophets at the time say more about it. It's violence and, and injustice and so on. Chances are this man, Habakkuk, could be a kind of professional prophet in the sense that he might have been of the tribe of uh, Levi. He might have worked in the temple uh, in Jerusalem. It's possible. And people think that because as you read his book, there are little kind of bits that remind you of the way the Psalms are written. And I'm telling you this because I, uh, Habakkuk is almost like a professional prayer. <laughs> it's his job to be praying. He's like a minister. He, you know, he does plenty of it. Um, you might think that about ministers. I may disillusion you if I say much more. But you know, that, the idea is that he's prayed a lot and nothing has happened. How long, he says, how long am I going to keep praying? I've been praying and praying and praying and praying and nothing has happened. How long, God? How long is it going to be? That's the force of his voice. Is that familiar to you, perhaps? Me? Is there any violence in our world by any chance? Does it ever look as if the, the, the righteous are being hemmed in by the wicked? Well, it's not difficult to find, is it? So how long is his question? But there's, that's not the only question. The other question is there in verse 3, Why? Why, God, does this world have to be like this? Why is it that the wicked are hemming in the righteous? Why is it that justice is perverted? How long and why? Two big questions, aren't they? Two real questions. I don't think if you've never asked those questions, I don't know, maybe maybe you've got all the answers, but I was going to say, I would think most human beings must ask those questions sometime we go there so often and you know the argument we think well if god is powerful we believe him surely he must be able to stop this stuff and if he doesn't stop it then either he's bad and in just enjoys letting this go on or he's weak and unable to do anything about it and so that, kind of that lies behind the questions that we might not, um, it's usually down to the atheists who kind of push us into that corner. But, but you know, it's a reasonable question. Of course, it's only a question if you believe in God in the first place. And for us as believers, the, the question is real and the question is painful. Because that we know from many different sources, many different evidence, even from our own experience. We know that God is good. We know that he isn't evil. We know that he works for good in all things. We can all tell of amazing stories where we've seen God work for good in our lives. 
And we know that he isn't weak. Now, true, we, we, we kind of understand that God has ordered the world in such a way that, you know, where human freedom exists, then evil is possible. We know that stuff. That's true. We also know, as we shall see, that in the end, it, he will sort everything out. And we also know, don't we, that the kind of obliter- uh, sorry, the kind of treatment that evil needs, if all the evil in the world were kind of zapped in some kind of, you know, cosmic piece of radiotherapy that, that dealt with the whole thing everything once and for all none of us would be left would we we'd all be obliterated we know that stuff we've been there we've been through those arguments we know that God doesn't override human freedom and and you know if I'm going to use a hammer to put in a nail it's a hammer but if I'm going to hit Paul Robinson over the head it becomes a rubber thing we know that that the world doesn't work like that so we know all those sorry Paul don't bring you in on that but you didn't look like you were sleepy either. I should have chosen a sleepy-looking person. But anyway, uh, we know those things. And we know if we're believers that God does intervene. We know because he saved us. We know he's come into our own lives. We know that he uh, he's answers some of our prayers. Now that's the real bummer. Some of our prayers. That's where Habakkuk is. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this. Back in the days when I worked for a mission agency called InterServe, which I did for 20 years, um, over that period, um, we were involved in lots of stuff as an organization. Let me tell you about one project. This is a, 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 a situation in Central Asia, very remote. There's a people group in this place. There's about 120,000 of them. Um, they had kind of healthcare needs, they have development needs, they have all kinds of nutritional issues, and not one single one of them have ever heard of Jesus. 120,000 at least. And uh, in 2003, uh, a group had been forming to provide that kind of healthcare and development and stuff, and, and we were involved in that. Other agencies were involved in that. Actually, WEC was involved in it. Frontiers was involved in it. Um, uh, Swedish agencies were involved in it. it was a, lots of people were involved in it, praying for it and so on. This was in 2003. And whilst traveling to that remote place in 2003, uh, three of the workers were abducted and held, kidnapped, and then miraculously rescued. The guy who was with them had run away and contrary to all expectations came back with some local people before anything terrible or deadly had happened and uh, the women, the young women were, were rescued. That was in 2003. Now, in 2010, associated with the same project in the same place uh, involving the same people with the same prayer back up and so on that's happening, another group were in a vehicle which was ambushed and five of them, all mission partners, most of them actually from InterServe, the mission I work with, were shot dead. So here's the question then. Why did the Lord enable the rescue of the three people in 2003 in that project but did not prevent the murder of the five in 2010? It's a bummer, isn't it? It's difficult. We don't know the answer. So where do we go with this? 
And this is what Habakkuk is struggling with. Why don't you answer, Lord? How long? How long is it going to be while evil gets the upper hand? Now, here's the thing. These questions are in the Bible. What does that tell us? They are part of the oracle, part of the burden from God that Habakkuk has been given. So what does that mean? It means that God is quite okay about us asking those questions of him. At the very least, it means, you know, when we're in that situation, we can ask God. That's what Habakkuk is doing. When we're hurting and raging, uh, we can bring that to God in prayer. Well, that's what Habakkuk does. And then the next thing that happens in verses 5 to 11, he gets an answer. Let's see what his answer is. It's rather shocking. Starts off promising, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your um, days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Sounds good. I'm raising up the Babylonians, the ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize the dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They're fiercer or more menacing than wolves at dusk. That's a great image. You know, at dusk, you hear, it's like you're out in the camping in the wilderness of Canada or somewhere. At dusk, you hear the wolves start. You think, woo, you know, that, it's that kind of image. That's how terrifying the Babylonians are. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture. Actually, it's an eagle swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose strength is their God. God starts, but you just see Habakkuk. Whoa, something amazing. Whoa, that sounds good. But look what it is. As he hears what it is, his blood must be running cold. This is the Babylonians. God says, I'm going to use the Babylonians to bring judgment on the people of Judah. Yeah, I'll get rid of what your prayer is answered, Habakkuk. The violence will be got rid of by the Babylonians. That's how the uh, violence will come to an end. Corruption, idolatry, and injustice in Judah, I'll get rid of it, and I'm going to use a cruel invader to do that. Well, what on earth is Habakkuk going to make of that? What do you make of it? Let's uh, read on. This is Habakkuk's response. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, We will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so on and so forth. It's just a terrible description of the evil of the impending invaders. 
You see, Habakkuk, when he hears God's answer, is like hit like someone, you know, being caught in, in, in waves, you know. And, and, and he kind of grabs on to something to kind of steady himself. What does he grab on to? Well, he gets his perspective, doesn't he? Verse 12. He says, Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? He says, God, you're the Lord. That's the word in the original for, for this special relationship word that God gave himself when he introduced himself to the Israelites. He said, I am the Lord. Yahweh is how some people would say it. And it's a name that's full of, of relationship promise. And that's what, what uh, uh, Habakkuk is hanging on to here. He, he, he says, look, you're my God. You're my holy one. You're my rock. He says, God, I'm going to hold on. You're my God. You're, you're my holy one. I'm, I, I'm not going to kind of let go of you. He, he keeps this personal sense of God being involved with him, Habakkuk, and committed to him. And he knows, as he says, that the whole of God's people won't be obliterated because he knows perfectly well that God has promised that a remnant will survive this onslaught. Isaiah uh, uh, makes that very clear as well. He's holding on to what he knows of God, but at the same time he has to accept. He said, okay, verse 12b, I accept that you have appointed them to execute judgment. You've ordained them to punish. That's an interesting thing. But then the questions come again. Verse 13. But how can you do that, he says to God. I thought you were meant to be holy. I thought you were supposed to be the holy God. How on earth, he says, how, how can you possibly be using bad people to be your judge? Or rather, how, he's saying, you're judging bad people, God, using people who are really bad. See? So he keeps asking. He holds on to what he knows of God, but he keeps asking questions. Now, do we need to learn from Habakkuk here? Honest asking, argumentative questions, it's okay. And in that process, we need to hold on to what we know of God while we ask them. Because I don't know about you, but I, I think that when we face these how long and why questions, do you tend to send God to Coventry? You know, no offense to Coventry. He used to live near Coventry. You know the expression, you stop talking to someone, it's like sending them to Coventry. Do we treat God like that when these kind of questions come? I know sometimes I can. Why do I do that? Well, sometimes it's because I'm just sulking, cause in, a, in a nice way, obviously. You know, because things aren't going the way I want them to, and I'm not willing to kind of admit that God may have got, you know, or other things might be happening. Sometimes it's because I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling really guilty that I'm not able to sweetly smile and be spiritual and send myself a, it's okay, God is in control text or a card to myself or post a, a lovely a kitten poster on my Facebook wall, you know, with some verse of the Bible usually taken out of context, which, you know, is supposed to bring me all the comfort that I need. I wish I could do that, but I'm afraid I can't. And so I feel guilty about it. So I think, oh, well, you know, just go over here. Maybe that's the point. 
The thing about Habakkuk is he doesn't do that, does he? He holds on to what he knows of God whilst continuing to, to push through with the questions that he has. Just like Job did in the Bible. Just like Jesus did. Remember, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, Jesus said, God, please take this away from me. How long? In the Garden of Gethsemane. But like Jesus, we ask those questions, but we needn't lose our awareness of God's faithfulness. Because Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never stops being my God, does he? He goes on in the garden to say, okay, God, if it's your will, I'll go with it. Because he knows God's will is trustworthy for him. Hold on. What happens next? Well, let's see. Chapter 2, verse 1. It's like a kind of account of uh, Habakkuk's dialogue. Oh, I must rush on. Sorry, time is going. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Habakkuk says, okay, I'm going to be like one of the watchers on the city wall. At the time, you know, the people would be on the city wall looking out, looking at the horizon, standing up there, waiting, looking as far as they could see to see if there was trouble they, so they could alert. Day and night, that's where they were, watching, waiting for something to happen. And, and, and Habakkuk said, I'm going to take my kind of standpoint rather like one of those watchers, and I'm going to wait until God gives me an answer on this one. And, you know, there is a need, isn't there, sometimes to wait more of that I think possibly later in the summer but you know waiting is often part of our discipleship part of our walking with Jesus it happens sometimes we have to in a sense put that issue on hold if that's possible and I know that can be very hard when we're hurting sometimes we just have to wait in prayer Sometimes we just have to wait and continue with life. Sometimes we just say, I just don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know why it is. I don't know how long it's going to be. I'm just going to have to keep going. And I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going to wait until I know, until God says something. I'm actually personally exactly in that place with something today. But as we wait, we say, I've got an ear open, I've got an eye open to what the Lord might say to me. That's what Habakkuk is saying. Now, waiting can take time. Uh, the, the picture here is of a watchman in the night, in the day. It's a 12-hour shift, you know. You have to stay there and keep at it. Uh, waiting as a watchman can be a, quite a lonely experience at times. Everyone else is, you know, sending uh, pictures of kittens on Facebook and you know got full of good answers and you're just having to wait you know wait till I hear what God has to say to me on that maybe you're getting texts that people think are encouraging but actually don't help that much but they're sent with good intent so you thank God for their heart of concern for you but you keep waiting 
You keep waiting. He says, I'm going to take responsibility for it myself. Uh, Habakkuk said, I'm going to stand at my watch. I'm going to station myself. Some people say there needs to be quietness so that you can hear. It may well be that shouting and arguing may just have to stop for a while. You know, say, God, okay, God, Habakkuk said, I've, that, that's it, God, I've had my say. I'm not going to stomp off and send you to Coventry, but I am going to wait for you to give me the answer that you want me to have in your time, not mine. And waiting implies that we're vulnerable to the Lord dealing with us. Look what Habakkuk says. Second half of chapter 2, verse 1, I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Actually, uh, yeah, Habakkuk is suggesting that God might have some questions for Habakkuk as well. And he's saying, okay, I'll wait and I'll be willing for that. And then, the first chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, last section. An answer comes, verse 2, the Lord replied. And here's the Lord's reply. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation waits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. And he goes on to talk about the, the other one. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes people captive of the peoples. And then God in verse 6 begins to announce judgment on the oppressor. But that's uh, for another time. I've called this not in the dark. See the Lord's reply to Habakkuk? Twice there's a word, a very key word. The word is revelation. God reveals something to Habakkuk. He makes it known. He has a message for Habakkuk and others who are going through the same thing. It's a message that's open. He says, put it on a tablet. At the time, you know, there were, it was a, the idea is a wooden board, something that could be nailed up somewhere that people could see. Write it down, he says. It needs to be read and thought about. Now, we can't cover even these verses now. He's going to go on to talk about how God will deal with evil, including the Babylonians. But I want two things as I close for us to notice. Firstly, it's all about the time scale. Did you notice that in verse 3? There's an appointed time. It speaks of the end. There's a time when God will act. It's actually a time when God will act and totally sort it all out, but that is going to be at the very end. But, but wait for it, says uh, God to Habakkuk. It will come. Uh, and if you sense that there can be a lesser resolution that, that Habakkuk, God is promising, Habakkuk, it, it will work out for you too, but you need to wait and be patient for that. The New Testament in 2 Peter 3 verse 8, if you are on page 1224, let's read that because it is important. Um, I'll read it to you if you, can, uh, if you like or you can follow it, page 1224. This is Peter writing really about this very same thing. Why is it that God is taking so long to sort everything out then? Why is it taking so long? Well, here's the answer. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. 
God's time scale is different. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. God, God is, is not sorting everything out completely for good because he wants as many people as possible before the time he comes and blows away all evil. He wants as many people as possible to be rescued out of evil to know him because of what Jesus has done as we have celebrated. So some of it is going to have to wait till the end and Peter's told us why. So that's the first thing Habakkuk is saying, or God's saying to Habakkuk. It's about the timing. And the second thing he says, we've got a choice here. Back in Habakkuk, two people are portrayed. Someone who's full of themselves, like the enemy, the Babylonians, thinking they've got it, they're greedy. But there is another person described. And this is the verse that the New Testament picks up. Um, Verse 4 of chapter 2. The righteous will live by faith. Romans 3, Galatians 3, Hebrews 10 make this a key passage. And what it means is that people can be made righteous or God makes us righteous as we trust in him through what Jesus has done. In Habakkuk's time, it was about Habakkuk and others saying, I'm going to trust in God. The God that I know is a rock. The, the God that I know is my God. The God that I know is holy. I'm going to trust in him. Even though life is pretty tough at the moment. That's the message to Habakkuk. It's the message to us. Now, for us who are believers, well, we trust God to make us right with him because of what Jesus has done, don't we? We trust ourselves to God for that. And there are times in crisis when we have to kind of run through that same process of trust with the issue that is overwhelming us. Why, Lord? Why haven't my kids come to faith yet? Why am I still sick? Why? How long do I have to keep praying for a partner or for my marriage to be whole? You know, all those kind of things. We trusted God by faith when we came to Christ and said, Lord, I'm going to trust myself to you. The message is that we trust ourselves to God in a similar way in the questions. So there's no hugely great answer to Habakkuk's questions. A bit like Job. The answer to Job's questions, and Job, the book of Job goes on considerably longer than the book of Habakkuk, as you will see, But the answer is not, this is the reason, or this is the solution philosophically. The answer is, I'm God. I'm committed to you, Habakkuk. You're right about me. I am the rock. I am the holy one. And you can trust me. We can bring our questions to God. It's okay. We can watch. We can wait. We can trust him, though, though we've no idea how it will possibly work out and can't see any way in which it might even. But we trust him. Because we know that God is with us in our questions. The book of Habakkuk has got anything to say to us. It's that. He's with us in our questions. And of course, we look at the life of Jesus. We know that Jesus went, went through everything that we go through and more. So in Jesus, we know he's with us. 
And you know, knowing God is with us in our questions is actually better than knowing the answers, someone has said. Don't know whether you agree. Think about it. Ponder it.